a daughter, and she put her on speakerphone so we could both hear her, and they were talking, and she said, what are y'all doing? And Allie said, well, we're driving to Alabama. And she said, what are you doing that for? And I said, so we can get closer to God. I'm glad to be back in Alabama. It's good to, uh, to enjoy good old home hospitality. I thoroughly enjoyed the meal. I thoroughly enjoyed getting to spend last evening with Mark and the good meal then. You all have been so wonderfully gracious to us, and we appreciate it very, very much. You know, I know that you have a tough job this afternoon. After that delicious meal, trying to stay awake. I understand that. I just want you to know that I feel your pain and more so because as tough as your job is, imagine how tough mine was going through that line and having to say, yeah, no, I can't eat that, I've got to speak at 1 o'clock. Yeah, no, I can't eat that one either, I've got to speak at 1 o'clock. As much as I wanted to because it looked delicious and what I ate was delicious and I appreciate so much your hospitality. I want to talk to you about heroes of law enforcement in the New, Intest- uh, the New Testament this afternoon. And as we begin to talk about that, I want to tell you, as an introductory way, about two of my law enforcement heroes back home in Humboldt. I had an interesting day in court one particular day. I was, I was called upon to represent two different clients who had the same charges And as I began to review the filings, the facts of those cases became eerily similar. Both of them had been pulled over for various different reasons, and a search had been conducted of their vehicle. And during the course of the search, the officers had found capsules, you know, like pills, but the kind that you can open and have the little powder in them. And they were not in a properly labeled bottle, and so they popped one of the capsules open and field tested it. And both officers received a positive field test for cocaine. And so they charged the occupants of the car with possessing cocaine. And I remember reading those warrants and thinking to myself, this is a new one on me. I mean, I've seen drugs packaged just about every way you can imagine. People moving them in all kinds of different ways. But that's the first time I'd ever seen cocaine packaged in capsule form. So I thought, well, that's odd. And I began to look at the criminal history of these particular people, and they didn't have one. Uh, And the other circumstances involved in the traffic stop, I began to look at those, and yeah, they needed to be stopped. They were speeding, or, or they had a light out, or something like that. But nothing that just jumped off the page and screamed, Desperado! And so I began to wonder, what is going on here? Well, as I was working on the case, I got a call from one of the officers. And I said, yeah, Kenny, what's going on? He said, I want to drop the charges on that client you got the other day. And I said, why? What's up? And he said, well, I didn't put it in the warrant because I only had so many words that I could fit into the warrant. But he said, "Uh, your client kept telling me the whole time, those are nice and capsules. They're dietary supplements. And he said, you know, I did what I had to do and I tested them. And they tested positive for cocaine. But he said, I never could rest easy with that. 
And he said, I got out the literature that comes with our field test and started researching. He said, I couldn't find anything about false positives for niacin. But he said, I just couldn't get easy with it. So he said, I went to Walmart and I bought some niacin capsules and I opened one of them up and I field tested it. And sure enough, that field test turned positive. And he said, I want to dismiss the charges. And I said, Kenny, you realize if you hadn't called me and told me that, that until the lab in Nashville got through with those, I had no way of knowing that. I said, you will never know how much I appreciate your honesty. And I went home that evening feeling really good about him. And just after I got home, I got a text message from the officer who had made the other stop. And he said, would you give me a call? So I called him up. Hey, Kevin, what's going on? He said, hey, man, I've been doing a little bit of research, and I found out those drug tests that we gave on that, that pill case you've got, they're, they're popping false positives. And he said, I want to drop the charges. I said, did you talk to Kenny? He said, no, what about Kenny? I said, Kenny just called me about four hours ago, said the same thing. He said, you're kidding. I said, no, I had two cases just alike. You and Kenny both had the same case. He said, look, I don't want to arrest somebody for something they didn't do that wasn't wrong. Boy, I really appreciate those guys. And you know, when time came for promotions at the police department, I just stuck my nose into it. I don't mind telling you. I went and sat down with, with the assistant chief and I said, hey, I want you to look at Kenny and Kevin for promotions. I said, I want you to know what kind of guys these are. I said, you talk about some stand-up guys. They didn't have to call me and tell me that. I was on the other side of the case. I was defending the guy they had arrested. But that's what kind of stand-up guys you've got. And then sometime later when Kenny became a member of the drug task force and Kevin became an investigator and they began to do some really good work and they began to draw some real flack from the real bad guys in town and people would make some false accusations against them. I could feel good about standing up and saying, no, I know what kind of character he has. I know what kind of character he has. That's a good guy and he wouldn't do that. Those are some of my heroes in law enforcement. And those stories don't usually get told. Kenny and Kevin didn't intend for it to be told. As far as they were concerned, if I knew it and they knew it and the charges were dropped, that's all they cared about. They just wanted to do the right thing. But I can promise you, when I see those guys walking down the street, I never wonder whether their motives are pure. There are some real heroes that walk our streets and drive cars down our streets every day wearing badges. But there are also some real heroes in the New Testament who also filled the role of a law enforcement officer. Now, we don't typically think about them as law enforcement officers, and that's just because of sort of the way we've been trained to think about law enforcement versus military in the United States. You know, there's not much overlap there. You're either a police officer or you're a member of the military, but you can't be both at the same time in the United States. Not so in Jesus' day. When you open the pages of the New Testament and you read about people that are called centurions, typically we teach that that is a Roman soldier. In fact, he would have been an officer, and he would have been an officer over 100 other Roman soldiers. And that's true. But what we don't realize, because we look at things through our 21st century glasses here in America, is that in the New Testament times, 
There really wasn't that line of dividing between soldiers and police officers. Soldiers did the work of police officers and the work of soldiers. It was sort of all one and the same. And so in the New Testament, we run into some folks who are called centurions, and typically we think about them fighting wars. But when we begin to look more closely at some of the work that they did, they did as much of what we would call law enforcement as they did soldiering work. So I want to introduce you to three of those this afternoon. And the first one I want you to look at with me is found in the seventh chapter of the book of Luke. Now, Matthew gives us a parallel account in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. But Luke gives us some insight into this particular law enforcement hero that I want you to see. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of uh, Luke chapter 7. Text says, Now when he had ended all of his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying, that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue." Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth. And to another come, and he cometh. And to my servant do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Now you know that story already. But ordinarily, when we read that story, we talk about the faith of the centurion and the fact that he understood how Jesus' authority works and that he understood that it wasn't necessary for Jesus necessarily to touch this man and heal him or even to come under the roof where he was, but that Jesus' authority could be projected from wherever he was in order to heal his servant. And certainly that's a valid point that we need to make. But I want you to back up to how this man is introduced in Luke's account, and in Luke's account only, by the way. Matthew doesn't give us this insight. In Luke's account, the Bible tells us, particularly in verse 3, that the centurion sent unto Jesus the elders of the Jews who besought Jesus to heal the centurion's servant. Now I want you to take just a moment and sit back and realize just how remarkable that little tidbit is. I told you this morning in Bible class that as a general rule, the Jews hated the Romans. And that's a pretty good general rule. Uh, When you go back and read the history of the Jews, if you read Josephus and you read the history of how the Romans came to interact with the Jews in Palestine and the way the Jews felt toward the Romans you understand that there was deep-seated resentment on the part of the vast majority of Jews against everything that had to do with the Roman Empire. 
And yet, here in this particular setting, you have not only some Jews, but the elders of the Jews coming to Jesus to beseech him on behalf of a Roman centurion. That knocked my socks off when I first realized it. To think about the fact that here are the, the elders of the Jews, the men who represent everything that is Jewish. The elders of the Jews would have been somewhat like the elders of the church today, except that the Jewish synagogue in any given town was the center of what it meant to be a Jew, not only religiously, but culturally as well. That's where the children went to school. They learned to read and write the Aramaic language by copying out of the Old Testament. They learned to add and subtract in synagogue school. They were taught the Old Testament. That was their literature. Their reading was the Old Testament. And, and it all centered around synagogue life. And so it was the center not only of the religion of the Jews, but of the culture of the Jews. And everything that it meant to be Jewish was bound up in the synagogue. And here are the elders who go and beseech Jesus on behalf of a centurion. And not only do they do that, but listen to what they say. Verse 4, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Now think about that a moment. Here's a centurion who loves the Jewish nation. Now, we've already seen how the Jews might have looked at this situation. I want you to flip that over just a moment and look at it from the point of view of the centurion. How do you suppose it went over with his Roman peers that he had affection for the Jewish people? How do you suppose it went over with his Roman peers that he had a, apparently a very major hand in building a synagogue for the Jews in that area? And that he was evidently kindly disposed toward the Jews. Because you see, from a Roman point of view, the Jews were one of the most obnoxious bunch of folks that they ever had to deal with. They were constantly rising up, griping, complaining, creating problems. You couldn't make them happy. If you did happen to make them happy today, they were unhappy about something about it tomorrow. It was one thing after another, after another, after another when it came to the Jews. And so Romans did not very well regard the Jews. And yet here is a centurion who has gone out on a limb and has taken these Jewish people under his wing, as it were, built them a synagogue, and it almost begins to make you wonder, doesn't it, if perhaps this man might have been somewhat like a man we're going to talk about in a moment named Cornelius, who was a worshiper of God. He certainly seemed to understand Jesus and his authority, didn't he? But here's a man who, as he went about doing his duties as a centurion, took the time to get to know the people over whom he had power. And not only to know them, but to treat them in such a way that when they had an opportunity to speak for him, the thing that they said was, he loves us. He loves us. This man loves us, and we know it because he's built us a synagogue. He must have been a remarkable man. 
I've actually had clients who are eyeball deep in crime come to me and say, can you set up a meeting between me and officer so-and-so? And I'd say, why? And they'd say, because I trust him. I trust him that he'll do the right thing. Now that's interesting to me. It takes a very special person to be able to fill the role of a law enforcement officer. And yet even some of the folks that he's arresting, helping to prosecute, building a case against, can say, I trust him, I know he's honest. And if I need to talk to somebody, he's the one I want to talk to. She's the one I want to talk to. That was this centurion. What a remarkable fellow. The next one I want to talk to you about is the one I alluded to just a moment ago. Cornelius in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. And again, I want to look at something perhaps just a little bit different from what we typically talk about about Cornelius. And that's the fact that you know, typically we talk about Cornelius seeking after the truth. And that honest heart that he had, wanting to know the truth and listening to Peter and bringing his household together. And what a wonderful heart Cornelius had. But I want to, I want to read to you how Cornelius is introduced to us in Acts chapter 10. In the opening verses of that chapter, verse 1 beginning, Acts chapter 10, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. Now watch this. A devout man. And one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. I don't know. We'll have to get to heaven to find out for sure. But geographically, Cornelius possibly could be the same as the man we met in Luke chapter 7. He's in the right area. But I want you to notice how God describes him through the pen of Luke. He is, verse 2, a devout man. You know, we don't use that word anymore. And it's one of those words I'd like to see us resurrect out of the dustbin of our vocabularies and start talking about folks being devout again. Devout is one of the highest compliments that you could be paid in Scripture. If it was genuinely said of someone that they were devout, that meant that they were sincere and earnest in their religion. And certainly everything we read about Cornelius bears out that description of him, that he was devout, he was sincere, and he was earnest, and he wanted to do the right thing. And here he's described as a devout man, and not only that, one that feared God with all his house. Fear to God. Now hold on a minute. He's a Roman centurion. Fearing God was not the official religion of the Roman Empire. In fact, fearing God came to be a mark of enemies of the Roman Empire just a few years after this in history. 
It certainly wasn't well regarded even at this time. And yet here is a man who feared God. He had come to know the God of heaven and he trusted him and he believed in him and he respected him and he honored him. And to the best of his ability, it appears that he obeyed him. He feared God, but not only did he fear God, but he feared God with all his house. You know, when we begin to talk about appointing elders, one of the things that we always talk about, and rightly so, it's, it's a requirement in Scripture, is that he have children that are faithful. And we talk about his wife being faithful, and that a man uh, dealing with his household, with his family, is at least one mark of identification that here's a man who might be in a good position to deal with the household of God. Because if he's done well with his family, he's got a good track record. Well, I don't know if Cornelius ever went on to become an elder in the Lord's church or not, but I do know this. He at least met that qualification, didn't he? Wherever he learned about God, wherever he learned to fear God, he took it home and he feared God with all his house. What a wonderful father Cornelius must have been. What a wonderful husband he must have been. But he's a centurion, and he's a Roman soldier who is responsible for keeping the peace and law and order in this area of the world around Caesarea. And he fears God with all his house. And not only that, he gave much alms to the people. Now, giving alms is simply giving to those who are in need. Whether it was clothing to somebody who needed clothing, Food to somebody who needed food. Money to somebody who needed money. A visit to somebody who needed a visit. Whatever it might have been, he was busy taking care of the needs of others. He did good deeds for people. I know police officers who have left a bag of groceries on somebody's front doorstep in the dead of the night. Because they knew that that family needed something to eat and they didn't want the glory for it. They didn't want anybody to know who had done it. They just left a bag of groceries on the front doorstep. You probably know some of those folks too. That's the kind of man Cornelius was. But you know what's interesting about that? That's exactly what Jesus said was what he was looking for. You remember the 25th chapter of the book of Matthew when Jesus gives us that judgment scene and he says he's going to separate the sheep from the goats and to, to those on his right hand he'd say, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger and you gave me to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was naked and you clothed me, sick and in prison and you visited me. And remember their response? Lord, when do we see you in this condition and minister to you? And his answer was, Inasmuch as you did it unto one of these, the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. That was Cornelius' outlook. He gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. I have a lot of respect for police officers who pray. Frankly, I don't see how a man could be a law enforcement officer and not pray. The dangers they face, situations that they have to put themselves into time and time again. But here's a man who prayed. And he didn't just pray when the chips were down. And he didn't just pray when he had a windfall in life. He prayed to God always. Always.
That's a law enforcement hero. That's the kind of person that ought to get a pat on the back from the folks that he serves. The last one, as our time runs out, is a man that we meet in Acts chapter 21. And oh, I wish the time would permit us to read all the way through the end of chapter 23. And in your private study, let me encourage you to do that because in these chapters we meet yet another centurion who is a remarkable example of what a good law enforcement officer is and a mighty good citizen in the process. In Acts chapter 21, Paul goes to the city of Jerusalem. And as he is in the temple in Jerusalem, a riot ensues. Some of of his enemies saw him there, and they begin to stir up the Jews, accusing Paul of bringing Gentiles into the court of the the, uh, temple. Well, guess who got the responsibility of breaking up riots? It was the Roman centurion and his soldiers. And if you've ever had an opportunity, let me encourage you to do this. There are some terrific pictures online of the temple compound in Jesus' day. And you'll notice just off one corner of the temple compound was what is known as the Antonia Fortress. It was a big, tall, it's described in, in uh, the book of Acts as a castle, uh, and it's sort of like that. It's a fortress right off the corner of the temple compound, and it was sort of the headquarters of the Roman garrison that was situated in the city of Jerusalem, and it's right there off the court of the temple. And so when this riot ensues and these Jews are getting ready probably to stone Paul right there in the courtyard of the temple, the centurion and his band of men rush down and they rescue Paul. Now let's read that in verses 27 and following of Luke, of uh, Acts, rather, chapter 21. The text says, And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him, that is Paul, in the temple, stirred up the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people, and the law and the place, and further brought Greeks also into, this, into the temple, and hath polluted this holy place." For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple. And forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left, off, left beating of Paul. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing and some another among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying, Away with him! And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Art not thou that Egyptian which before these days madest an uproar and ledest out into the wilderness four thousand men that were murderers? But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, Suffer me to speak unto the people. 
And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with his hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, and then Luke begins to give his speech in chapter 22. I want you to think about this just a moment. Here comes this captain, basically to break up another riot in the city of Jerusalem. And he comes and he finds them beating up Paul. And he takes Paul, as it were, into protective custody, probably to save his life. And he begins doing what any good police officer would do. He begins investigating what's going on here. Why are you beating this man up? You know, I've never envied police officers trying to break up a fight. I've heard many of those stories. Whether it's a domestic fight or just just an all-out brawl in the middle of the street, I, I really don't envy the officers who have to wade into the middle of that and try to break it up and figure out what's going on and who hit whom first and why and who's done what to whose mother or girlfriend or whatever. And that's exactly the position that this soldier is in. He's trying to sort out who did what. Except that he's Roman and they're Jewish. So the cultures don't exactly line up. And furthermore, there's somewhat of a language barrier, as we're going to see in a moment. But he's trying to make what sense he can out of this. He takes Paul, and he's taking him literally, physically, by means of his soldiers, having to carry Paul, because the people are pawing and scratching at him, trying to rip him down so they can kill him. And Paul says, can I talk to you? Now, who in here would have blamed this guy if he'd have said, shut up, I don't have time for you right now? I wouldn't have. I think had I been the captain of the guard, I think I would have waited till I had Paul safely in a cell somewhere and said, now you can talk. But this man goes ahead and lets him talk. The only question he asks for him is, can you speak Greek? Can you speak a language that I'm fluent in so that I can understand? And he asks him about whether he's an Egyptian. And Paul says, no, my background's from Tarsus. And he says, can I speak to the people? Question number two. Who in here would blame him if he said, absolutely not. They were just trying to kill you. You need to shut up and let me get you out of here. But he lets him speak to the people. And not only does he let him speak to the people, but if you notice, right at the end of chapter 21, Paul doesn't speak to the people in the Greek language, the language that the captain of the guard would have readily understood. He begins to speak to them in the Hebrew tongue. Now, my background's not in law enforcement, but I spend an awful lot of time with those guys. I'd be getting nervous about that, because now I can't understand what he's saying to them. And I don't have any way to predict if he's about to say something that's going to start yet another riot. And frankly, at this point, I'm not even real sure what the riot's about. But he lets him. And Paul begins to speak. And Luke gives us the text of his speech until we get down to verse 21 of chapter 22. Look at this. Paul says, And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. 
And they gave him audience unto this word. The word Luke's referring to there is Gentiles. They gave him audience unto this word, and then lifted up their voices, and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle, and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. Paul speaking in Hebrew, the, the captain doesn't know what he's saying. But when Paul gets to the word Gentile, the place just blows up. And so the captain says, fine, I've had enough. Take him in the fortress and scourge him till we find out what this is about. That's typical Roman investigation techniques, by the way. Take him in the castle, scourge him until we find out what this is about. Paul, as it turns out, lets the man know that he's a Roman citizen. And he doesn't scourge him. And we find out in chapter 23 that these very same people who were trying to kill Paul in the temple take a vow that they're not going to eat or drink until they kill him and they've in fact set up a situation so that they can ambush him and word gets back to the captain of the guard through Paul's nephew that that ambush is set and so he calls together a huge group of soldiers and cavalry and they escort Paul not back to see the Sanhedrin but all the way out to the coast to the palace of the Roman governor. In the dead of the night. Now he didn't know who had done what. He didn't know if Paul was guilty or innocent. He didn't know what the riot was about. But here's a man that step by step did the right thing. Every time. One of my investigator buddies calls it working the case by the numbers. Y'all ever heard that? He said, you work the case by the numbers and it'll work out every time. Faithful to his duty. Faithful to his duty. I want you to go back and look at these three men. One who was faithful to his duty. One who was faithful to his God. One who was faithful to his people. All three of them law enforcement officers. And all three of them heroes. They deserved the respect and the gratitude of the people that they served. But isn't it interesting that they evidently by their faithfulness gained the respect of God himself. Have you ever thought about all the people who are not specifically told about in Scripture? who are not mentioned by name, who might have done wonderful, mighty things. And yet here are these three Roman soldiers who are listed, some of them by name, certainly by deed, in the New Testament and described in detail, who are heroes. They're painted in a great light. In fact, one of them, Jesus said of him, I've not found so, much, so great a faith, rather, in all of Israel. Well commended by the Scriptures as law enforcement heroes. Now the lesson that I want you to take from this this afternoon is this. Whether you're law enforcement or not, if you're faithful to your people, faithful to your God, faithful to your duties, 
you can be a hero. And in God's eyes, you will be. And you will influence people for the better. And you may deliver the innocent, like the captain of the guard delivered Paul. And you may be an example of faith to others, like the centurion was whose servant was healed. And you may be a person for whom God would say, your prayers and your alms have gone up for a memorial for you before the throne of God, like Cornelius was. You can be a hero if you'll be faithful. Faithful to the people around you. Faithful to your God. And faithful to your duties. It begins, of course, by becoming a child of God. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God and repenting of your sins... Confessing your faith and being buried in the waters of baptism to wash away your sins so that you can be raised to walk a new life. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 to 4. As a child of God, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. To walk in the light with God, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. As He is in the light and to enjoy fellowship with Him. Being faithful in every aspect. Perhaps you've done that. Perhaps you began well. And you put on Christ and you walked well for a while, but somewhere along the way you've stumbled. Somewhere along the way you've gotten messed up and lost your way. What do you do then? That was Simon, Acts 8. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray that perhaps the thought of thine heart might be forgiven thee. And as we mentioned this morning, God promises, 1 John 1, 9, that if we'll confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us by the blood of Christ. Want to be a hero this afternoon? Do the right thing. And if that means making a change, do it now while we stand and sing. When we up His Word, what